If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hi, folks, I'm Amy Wright, and my guest today is acclaimed songwriter and Texas bred luminary James McMurtry. James has just released his first full length studio album in seven years via New West Records. It's titled The Horses and the Hounds. And today we get into the making of the record and other topics that show us just what makes this celebrated tunesmith tick. McMurtry recorded the new album with legendary producer Ross Hogarth at Jackson Brown's Groove Masters in Santa Monica, California, a world-class studio that's housed such legends as Bob Dylan, David Crosby, of course, Jackson Brown, and now James McMurtry. The author Stephen King wrote that James McMurtry may be the truest, fiercest songwriter of his generation, and I think King may be on to something. Take a listen, and we'll connect again at the end of the show. So James, welcome to Diddy TV. Thanks for joining us. Well, good to be here. And we're going to talk a little bit about your latest album, Horses and the Hounds, and it's your first album in about seven years. Is that right? Uh, yeah, first release. Yeah, we worked on it for a couple of years, actually. So when you're writing your music, are you typically writing it along the way and collecting songs and then deciding what goes on the album? Or is it, is it more of an exercise for you? Um, well, I, I start songs all the time and then I finish them when it's time to make a record. And uh, the songs that happen to get finished in time are what goes on the record. Do you typically hear a verse or a chorus in your head first? Uh, could be either. I, I just get a couple of lines and a melody and uh, run with it. Well, just kind of going back to where you got started, you grew, you were born in Texas, mm -hmm. and then you spent a bunch of time up in the sort of D.C., Virginia area. Two very different life experiences, and now you live in Texas again, right? I do. I live in Lockhart, about 30 miles south of the Austin airport. So would you but, say yeah, we, you identify we, with Texas a little more than D.C.? <laughs> uh, not necessarily. Uh, I mean, we, we spent most of our time in uh, 
Loudoun County, which at that time was a rural area, is about 50 miles out of D.C. And then during the course of time, you know, the 18 years we were there, so, well, let's see. I was there about 11 years, and it, uh, Loudoun got bulldozed over pretty fast and suburbanized during that time. Well, it was funny because uh, I, I read that you actually attended Woodbury Forest, which was a school down in southern Virginia, and I happened to be in boarding school for one year, but it was in England. But one of the guys that was in my school over there had gone to Woodbury Forest, and we both came back and went, went to University of Virginia there. And, uh, and so, um, and I were about the same time, so he loved Woodbury Forest. I mean, I, I, what did you think of it? Oh, I had a pretty good time there. Um, my dad decided to move back into D.C. for my freshman year of high school. and yeah, so, so I went there as a freshman, and uh, I went back down to Woodbury just because I, I knew guy, people there from the time I was had spent out in Loudoun County. Um, I, I sort of I wasn't ready for city life. It was just too sophisticated for me, uh, which is it's kind of strange because I was, I was in a school that... Uh, probably the least cliquish high school that ever I can imagine. It was called Murray. It was a, a day school there and and it was mostly uh, diplomatic corps kids from all over the world so they just kind of created their own community and they really gave me a chance and I didn't take it. It was weird. Um, I, I, I wanted something familiar so I went back to Virginia. So you obviously what, what really strikes me about your music is that even in the songs in the new album, Horses and the Hounds, you talk about uh, lots of different geographic areas from Canada down to Florida in different ways. And does that come a lot from your travels or, or, or are they just thoughts in your head or from books? And where does that come from? Oh no, that's from touring. That's, we, we spend a lot of time in a rental van and uh, I do a lot of the driving. So I've seen a lot of the country that way. So, um, as a kid, did your mom and dad encourage you when it came to music to play the guitar, to, to, in, to have a career in music? Uh, my mother actually taught me guitar chords when I was probably seven or eight years old. Uh, I don't know that either of them wanted me to have a career at it. Uh, they didn't mind. I mean, uh, my father made his living mostly as a screenwriter, which was definitely outside the box that he grew up in. His, his father was a rancher. You know, he didn't know people that read for pleasure, even writing to them was completely foreign. So I, Larry had already broken the mold for me. I didn't have to rebel or fight anybody to, to be a musician. Well, that must have been nice to have that way paved for you in advance. It probably helped, yeah. So at what point did you think that you wanted to make music your career? Because you obviously had any kind of path available to you. Well, I, I saw Chris Christopherson perform when I was nine years old, and he and his band seemed to be having such a good time that I thought that's what I want to do. It wasn't for the ladies? <laughs> uh, well, it, later it was. <laughs> <laughs> Never I wanted hurts. Women, I, I, I wanted women to talk to me, and, and I wasn't going to make the football team, so <laughs> what can a poor boy do? What were you, were you writing music already in high school and then into college? Uh, no, I was starting to write verse a little bit, but I didn't write anything worth singing until I was probably 25. Were you already writing poetry or 
short stories? A little of both, yeah. I'm not very good at prose. I got out of that pretty quick. But uh, yeah, I was starting to think in terms of rhyme and meter. So. Well, and I, I read that you talk about in your songs that you're really writing a short story, but put to music sort of in it uh, sometimes. I never, some people say that that's my way, but I, I never, I don't believe I ever put that idea forth. No, I write first. I don't write short stories. So, um, who gave you your first big break in the music business? Uh, John Mellencamp. Uh, he uh, he actually he hired my father to write a script uh, screenplay for him, and I was about to go to Nashville. I thought I would try to be a, a staff writer because uh, I knew people that did that. I knew Fred Kohler, and you know, I, Fred wasn't a staff writer, but he he would pitch songs, and you know, I figured I could do that. It seemed possible. I didn't know people that had their own record deals, so I wasn't really looking for that at the time, but. Uh, but uh, Larry and John were supposed to get together and rewrite, rewrite that screenplay. Um, and I had a little cassette that I was going to pitch around Nashville, so I just I sent it with Larry. I said, give that to Mellencamp, see what he thinks. You know, I thought maybe he'd want to cut one of those songs. And that way, when I got to Nashville, somebody would actually rent me an apartment. <laughs> you know, uh, But uh, John, didn't, he didn't want to cut them, but he, uh, he called up and said, you want to make a record? And he had a little bit of time on his hands. So he produced my first record, and he got me the deal with Columbia. What did you learn from the experience of working with someone who was so so experienced in the industry? Oh, I learned a little bit about production. Uh, I learned, you know, tricks with percussion that you can use to kind of spice up a track, and that helped later on when you know my career got to a point where I had to produce myself because nobody else wanted to. So I remembered a lot of that stuff I learned from Mellencamp and Don Dixon, Lloyd Maines. Well, you know, I interview a lot of musicians and especially musicians who've been in the business or since, you know, kind of pre-Napster and then post-Napster and how the whole music industry has flipped on its head, really. You used to sell records and you went on tour to kind of support your record sales and then now you actually tour that's it's what the other you do way around. Yeah, we we put records out in part so that we'll we'll get to talk to press and it kind of it advertises our tours. You know, we get local press about a record, then people will know when we're coming to town. Maybe they'll buy a ticket. We're profiting off the road rather than the record, and it works fine for me because I never sold enough records to profit off the the product. What I find kind of interesting is if you go back in history of the early rockers, I mean, as in early as in 1950s, when you look at someone like Elvis Presley, they were touring to make money. I mean, that's what they did. They were, but they also sold a lot of records, they too. They did. And it was hard, it was hard product. <laughs> you know, like nowadays, there's, there's no royalty for streaming, really. <laughs> Very minimal, and not a whole lot for downloads, either. Now, back in Elvis's day, well, and ended up through the end of the 90s, the songwriter would make, was supposed to make six and a half cents per song per unit. So if you write all, you know, it, the record companies would skim a little bit of that. They weren't supposed to, but they did. So you'd basically be making a nickel a song. 
And if you if you wrote all the songs on your record, well, that's that's you know fifty cents a record for just for the songwriter. But uh, you don't see that anymore. No, no. I mean, I think if there is any difference, maybe artists have more control over their careers now than they used to. They do, yeah. Uh, it's just the, the career is a different thing, you know. It's not that it's not as lucrative, but it's 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 a job. So, from a self-production standpoint, is it more relaxing to be in the studio when you're producing something yourself than being under the pressure of, say, working with a label and being time stamped and and having to do something in a two-week period, for example? It's definitely, yeah, it's a lot more relaxing. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you still got to pay for the studio time. So, you have to be efficient one way or the other. True. I was actually in a band one time, and we were recording, and the lead singer, um, he got mad and walked out of the studio. And uh, the rest of the band, because none of us had much money, were a little bit upset because we were all paying for the time. Yeah. And it's yeah. expensive. Yeah, everything. So let's talk Horses and Hounds and uh, the new album. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's really an interesting album. I, I think it's a lot about uh, a lot of Americana themes, um, a lot about the working man. Um, I really enjoyed the, the melody. And, and some of the songs were more rocking, and others were a little more mellow. But what really struck me was how much of the songs were about working man, the average person. Um, did you set out to make an album like that? No, I just tried to scrape together enough songs to make an album of any kind. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I can't remember a time when I really decided ahead of time you know, on a theme for a record. It just it comes together or it doesn't. So you took, obviously, a few years in between albums. When you take time in between the albums, are you just touring um, and for, for the most part and then you wait to write the songs till you are going to make another album or how does that work? Well, I, I, write, I wait to finish the songs until I need a record. Uh, I, I, sort of, I need a deadline really to, to you know, just get up the energy to finish the song. But uh, I, don't, I don't feel the need to make a record until my tour draw starts falling off. And, you know, for a couple of times there, we've, we've, our draw has held up mysteriously for years without there being a record out. Um, now, this record, we actually, we tracked it in uh, June of 2019. And then, you know, we overdubbed off and on throughout the fall, depending on when our schedules allowed, because, you know, Ross Hogarth's pretty busy. He's always got two or three projects going at the same time. And he was the producer? Yes, and, and we were touring a good bit, so... Um, we finally we got most of the overdubs done by the end of 2019, and then we we needed keyboards, and we we're supposed to get Ben Montage to come in to Sunset Sound, I think in February or March, and we had the session booked, and a week before the session was booked, California shut down, nobody could do anything, so and. Uh, we never did get Ben Mott on the record, but we got uh, Bucka Allen, and uh, we, we had several keyboard players that we, you know, we then had to do things kind of piecemeal. 
I did it. I recorded a couple of sessions with Bucca here in Texas, and Ross had you know a couple of people in California that he was working with. Um, some tracks were emailed in, like you can do now. It's um, if if you can't actually get together in the same physical space, you can email tracks. It's uh, rather time consuming because you have to, you know, the guy will send in a track and the producer has to call him back and say, hey, redo that, but in that section, leave out the third in the chord, whatever. And, you know, that kind of stuff would take you five minutes if you were both in the same studio. But, you know, mailing back and forth, it can take all day. So, uh, you know, it was finally mixed, uh, I guess, uh, the fall of 2020. And, uh, mastered in the spring and now it's out so you were recording most of it uh, before the pandemic so you weren't really challenged by uh, the pandemic specifically yeah just with the keyboard sessions Mm -hmm. Um, some of the percussion and you recorded it in jackson brown's studio the tracking the tracking was done in uh, groove masters in santa monica and then uh, we did some uh, guitar overdubs, and uh, the background vocals were done at Arlen Studios in uh, Austin. Uh, I did the the vocals. I did a, a place in Van Nuys. I can't remember the the name of the place, but uh, yeah, there there are three or four studios in it over the course of the recording. It's funny when I saw that you recorded at Jackson Brown's studio in Santa Monica. I thought, was it the studio or the weather? <laughs> that you were picking well i just i don't i wanted to go to la i'd never i'd never recorded out there before and and uh, it worked out pretty well except you know one one of the vocal sessions that i went out there i guess it was october of 2019 and i, I didn't realize that that gray haze that was hanging over the san fernando valley wasn't just the usual valley haze it was actually wood smoke from the wildfires that were going on and i walked around in it and just shredded my voice it was you know that most of that session was worthless i had to go back in december and re-sing all the vocals yeah i that's crazy i mean you don't people don't think about the um um, the environmental impact that that a forest fire has on an area it's it stretches for Miles yeah, and it, it'll mess you up. You got to be careful. How do you do with altitude in singing? Uh, I'm okay up to about. Well, I, I can sing at real high altitude. Um, I can sing in Aspen. Aspen's about ten thousand feet. What I can't do in Aspen is sleep. I wake up thinking I'm drowning. Oh. <laughs> but, but yeah, I'm okay up to around seven or eight thousand without much problem at all. Um, but the some of those ski resorts you have to learn you just have to take more catch breaths and really plan them out yeah i was wondering about that because in taos like i just mentioned we were at the barn barn dance festival and it's pretty high up there and i was feeling a little odd i mean i i'm in memphis normally so i'm at sea level and i went up there and i felt a little strange yeah that was uh yeah taos is about seven thousand, i think um I didn't. I don't remember having a problem that time because I, I was actually I was in Albuquerque for a couple of days before we did the Taos thing, and Albuquerque's I guess fifty-five, six somewhere up in there. So, um, on "Decent Man" and "Blackberry Winter," those are a couple of the songs that are on the new album. 
Mm -hmm. um, I, I recently interviewed Jamestown Revival, and they wrote a, an album around Louis L'Amour's books. And, oh, yeah. and uh, have you ever read any of those books? No, I, I can't read L'Amour. <laughs> um, but Decent Man and Blackberry Winter were inspired by Wendell Berry and Robert Penn Warren. Uh, is that right? Uh, or Well, Blackberry Winter, I just stole the title from uh, Robert Penn Warren short story, but I didn't, I didn't, I don't, I barely remember that story. Decent Man really was a, a Wendell Berry short story that I, I just changed the, the point of view and the chambering of the pistol and season of the year. Um, and I, I actually, I sent him a letter to his farm in Kentucky and said, you know, you, would, would you like writer credit on this? And he called me up and left a message said, no, we don't, it's a different medium. We don't need to do that. Just have fun with it. So, um, also, there was a song in there, Operation Nevermind, where you talk about how removed a lot of Americans are from, from war, and uh, that we don't, really, we don't really have to see it, it's not in our face, and so we don't really think about the sacrifice that a lot of people have to make. Well, one of the problems I have with you know, military operations is we don't know what's going on because no one is allowed to cover war anymore. In the Vietnam era, there were people over there covering it, and they got to interview soldiers, and and the soldiers weren't restricted from talking to the press. And that went on. The last time I saw that was when Reagan sent the Marines into, into uh, Lebanon, into Beirut. And uh, interviewers were walking up to random Marines and, you know, asking them questions, and the Marines were looking them right in the camera and saying, why are we here? They said, this is not our mission. We're an offensively trained force. Why are we sitting on low ground around an airport getting shot at from the high ground that we're not allowed to go out and take? And I'm sure Casper Weinberger and Ronald Reagan didn't care for that much. And then uh, you know, somebody blew up a barracks and, and killed a bunch of guys. And a couple of weeks later, we invaded Grenada for some reason. Uh, it looked to me like they were just trying to take our minds off Beirut. But in Grenada, the, the only journalists that went ashore with U.S. forces, they made it ashore and then they were arrested and detained aboard an aircraft carrier for the rest of the, of the action. There, there were some journalists that snuck on with, uh, with Grenadian civilians and kind of got around it. But uh, we haven't had independent war coverage since then. Yeah, during, during Desert Storm, we had General Schwarzkopf spoon-feeding us the war from a tent showing video clips that he wanted us to see, and, you know, it was like a pep rally. And now we have, we have journalists embedded with the troops, and, and, and they're, right, they're doing some good work, but you really have to dig for it now because we've got so many channels. Everybody can find the channel that kind of reinforces their own opinion. Yeah, we we don't have you know, in some ways I think the network era was was better because we only had about four channels and we had Walter Cronkite and a couple of guys that were trying to be Walter Cronkite and everybody listened to him. There was a center because that's all there was. They had to speak from the center out. They didn't do you know you couldn't do niche marketing like you can now. And um, I think really cable TV. 
and satellite is, you know, it has a lot of advantages, but it's, it's gotten us into a mess, I think, politically. I, I agree with you. I think that it's very hard for the average person to really disseminate what's true and not true on the internet. And at least when we had network television, there were people behind that who were fact-checking and, and trying, yeah. trying at least, to make sure we they had, had We had a correct. journalistic standard. Mm -hmm. you know, we don't have any standard anymore. No. Well, and also, when pe people with different points of view always existed, but they didn't really have access to information that just reinforced their opinion in a way that didn't give them information from the other side. So, you know, you ended up you end up on this path going uh, away from the center, whichever direction that may be. Yeah. But it's because you know your your viewpoints just being reinforced as as opposed to giving you all the points of view and then making decisions from that point. Yeah, well, it probably sells more product that way. You know, everybody feels good about themselves because they're listening to somebody that thinks like they do. But um, yeah, you're right. There, there is no truth. Truth is not a priority anymore. So, do you think, as a songwriter, that it's your um, obligation to, as as a platform, to to write about uh, causes or not? No, it's it's not an obligation. Uh, now and then I can get away with it. The problem with writing for a cause for or trying to express your opinion in song is that you wind up writing sermons a lot of the time. You have to get real lucky to get a good song that way. Unless you're Steve Earle. Steve can do it. I don't know how <laughs> he does it. But. Well, at this point in your career, you've been doing this for a while and writing songs and, and creating and would you say it's getting easier with more experiences just in life in general? The rhyme and meter part is, is easier. Uh, voice training really helps. Uh, I, I, got, I did some voice training some years ago because I kept losing my voice. I wasn't trying to be Pavarotti or anything. I was just trying to figure out how to take care of the instrument. And, uh, and w one of the things it taught me is, is to write for the vocal instrument. You look for vowels that sing easier. You, you look for consonants that don't tongue-tie you or, or choke off your voice, your airflow, whatever. Um, and that makes you a better songwriter. You know, it, it's not like spoken word or poetry where it can be read or spoken. It has to be sung a lot of the time. and Some words you can sing, some you can't. That's well said. Um, so... Uh, on a couple of other songs, there was one, Fort Walton Wake Up Call, which I thought was hilarious, by the way. And uh, I've you. been to Fort Walton many times, living in Memphis. It's it's one of the closest, the Emerald Coast yeah. of, of Florida. Mm. It's beautiful down there, uh, but it's you know they also call it the Redneck Riviera <laughs> in the South. Yeah. It's it's kind of a, co a combination of of a lot of different things down there. But you spent time down there, I take it. Well, yeah, we play the, there's a festival that happens in January called the 30A Festival, and it's multi-venue. They're all strung out along Florida Highway 30 alternate, and uh, and it invariably freezes. It's, it's in January, yeah. the wind blows out of the north, it's the same north wind everywhere. 
only on the Gulf Coast you have that damp, clammy cold. And so every time we go down there, we, we always wind up staying, playing outside in 30 degree weather. And I, I don't know, I just started messing around with words in one of those hotel rooms one day. And, and it generated part of a song and I sang it at Soundcheck one time. And, and I wasn't going to put it on the record, except Darren, the drummer, badgered me into pulling it back out. And Cornbread, the bass player, actually had a had a tape of it because I, when I when I wrote it, I told I called him up and I couldn't get the recording app to work on my Android, so he had an iPhone. I said, "Get down here with that iPhone and record this before I forget it." So that's that's why you know both those guys got writer credit on that because I, I never would have finished it if they hadn't. A, Barred me into it. I liked the chaos in the song. You know, it kind of starts off with things are just going bananas, and then there's the chorus, which says, "I can't find my glasses." Is that what? What's the line? I, can't, I keep losing my glasses. Keep losing my yeah, glasses. That wasn't supposed to be the chorus either. I just I stuck that in there as a placeholder, and, but nobody seemed to mind it, so I just left it in there. Well, I had this vision when I when I heard that of all this chaos going long, around in, in, in the hotel room and then you, know, you can't find your glasses and that's all you can focus on because you got to get in the car and go someplace and you can't yeah, drive you without can't your leave. glasses. Yeah, I got to have, you know, Georgia license code B restriction, corrective lenses, you know. Exactly. Um, and then uh, there was a couple, there were a couple of other songs, Jackie, which I was, I was a little bit sad at the end of Jackie because Jackie meets a demise in, in the song, yeah. but uh, it was an unusual tape because it was a female truck driver, not a male truck driver. And was that intentional? No, when I, that, that started out as two different songs. Um, and uh, it, the, the trucker was originally male, and then I realized that I scanned through my scrap pile on the computer and I realized I had these two verses to what I thought were two different songs, but they had the same rhyme and meter scheme. So being lazy, I just stuck them together in one song and Jackie became the trucker. So um, why is it that you killed her off in the end? <laughs> well, because that's the verse I started with, jackknifed on black ice with an oversized load. Um, you know, the trucker was always going to die, but the trucker wasn't always Jackie. So when you're when you're writing lines like that, that is come to you in your head and you scratch scratch them down someplace and then go back and write later. Yeah, I try to put them on a computer as fast as I can because I'll lose if, if it's on paper, I'm going to lose it. And when you're writing, does a melody ever come to you before the lyrics or is it almost always the lyrics first? No, they're always simultaneous. Yeah, I don't, I don't put words to music or, or music to words, generally. I, I have to have a melody and a, a lyric. So let's talk about Vaquero. Is it Vaquero? Vaquero, yeah. Vaquero. Uh, and it, in the song, there, there's lyrics that are in Spanish. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's, a, it's about a cowboy. But I was wondering from what perspective that you were writing this since the uh, there was a portion of it that was actually in Spanish and I wanted your take on that. It's a beautiful well, song. Well, I, I wrote it for Bill Whitliffe who uh, 
he did the, the screenplay for Lonesome Dove and was co-producer on it and uh, a longtime family friend. He actually published uh, one of my dad's early early books, In a Narrow Grave, Essays on Texas. Uh, he had a, Bill had a press in Austin, Encino Press. But Bill was also an excellent photographer. And he he put out a coffee table sized book um, in the late 60s called Vaquero. Uh, he had a friend who managed a really big ranch in northern Mexico. So Bill would go down there and take pictures and the way they worked that place, they had I think a couple hundred thousand acres with no cross fencing. So they had to work those cows in a basically 19th century manner. They had a chuck wagon. Chuck wagon had rubber tires on it by this point. They'd, they'd found out you could put pickup wheels under a chuck wagon and it would ride a little smoother. Um, but you know, they, they did all their working out in the open, holding cows in the open, roping, dragging, all the old time stuff. And Bill did a great job of documenting that life before it pretty much vanished. So he had one book called Vaquero and he had another one uh, called La, La Vida Brinca, which uh, it's a Mexican expression and basically means life jumps. And that was a book of pinhole photography that he did in, in Mexico. So I incorporated both those titles into the song. Um, and that, but except with La Vida Brinca, I turned, I turned it around because in Spanish you can put the verb before the noun. You can say, you know, instead of life jumps, you can say it jumps the life. And it makes sense in Spanish. Is this why, you know, a lot of times people that learn English word for word, will, you know, will speak, uh, they'll speak English with Spanish constructions. So a lot of, in a Mexican restaurant, a lot of the time, you, you order an extra order of, of, of flour tortillas and they bring you the meal and the tortillas aren't ready yet. And they'll say, it's coming the flour tortillas. They're putting the verb in front and then subject last. You can do it either way. That makes it easier to write a song, though. <laughs> I would I would imagine it would make it easier to write the song. Um, yeah. Well, also, you know, if you use infinitives, uh, a lot of the words have the same ending. Mm -hmm. E-R or A-R, you know. So you, you said the meter is important to you. Um, it does, where does that come from? your focus on the meter? Well, you, you have to be able to sing it and, you know, if your meter's right, you, your syllables will drop right in the pocket. Uh, makes, you know, there's a lot less effort involved in singing that. Christopherson's brilliant that way because his lyrics can, you know, they can be sung or they can be spoken um, with equal effect. He was a Rhodes Scholar. You know, he, he studied verse and knew really how to structure it. But you know, as I said before, some words can only be spoken and not sung. You want to write it for for either way. So that that way, you have a lot more flexibility when you're trying to trying to put your vocal down. You know, you might get the point across better talking a line here and there, or throwing mm -hmm. it away. But if, if if it falls in the pocket, if it's metered correctly, then you can do anything you want with it. You know, I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective when a singer is, quote, singing a song, but then they talk through a couple of lines of the verse and they're not really actually singing them mel melodically. 
um, I hadn't thought about the fact that it could be just because it doesn't sound right sung. Or, or it might just sound better or it might get the idea across. Roy Acuff, uh, on the back of one of his albums, he was talking about, he says, I'm not a singer, I'm a seller. He says, Johnny Cash isn't a singer either, but he can sell you a song. Well, in reality, they were both singers, but they also knew how to sell a line, whether they sang it or not. That's the performance side. Yeah. Well, and there's, there's, there are a lot of, I should say, writers that aren't necessarily performers. That's uh, true, and they have to, but they, a, a good songwriter, they have to write to the singer's voice. They have to write something that can be sung. Um, my songs don't get covered a lot, I think, because good singers really like to stretch. You know, my songs don't need to be stretched. Well, you wrote them for yourself. Yeah, yeah, mostly. Uh, and every uh, now and then, somebody, Robert Keane covered Level Land. Uh, Ray Wiley Hubbard covered Choctaw Bingo. So, so yeah. the American West... There are a lot of songs that you've written that discuss themes of the American West. Um, what draws you specifically to to those themes? Uh, I don't know. Um, you know my, my father was a kind of a, a Western U.S. history buff himself, so I guess I got a lot of that from him. You know, he knew all about the, the Native American wars and that sort of thing. Well, I have to say, this is just an amazing album, and um, I really enjoyed it. It's, it's great to great listen. Uh, it moves and well, um, well produced, and all those fun things. I encourage everyone to get a copy of Horses and the Hounds. I appreciate it. And yeah. a, C uh, a CD or, L or an LP, please. <laughs> Royalties are better. It, okay, perfect. CD or LP, and when do you get to Memphis no, next? You can, you can download it if that's what you like. <laughs> I don't, I'm just messing with No, hey, we, we have a store here called The Vibe and Dime, and we sell vinyl records, and it's been interesting because more young people are buying vinyl than anything else. It's, it's been yeah, great. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I'm not really a fan of the vinyl myself, but if, if that's what they want, that's what we'll sell. So uh, what's next for you, James? Uh, I really don't know. I just I just uh, just canceled a tour for them. We were supposed to go out west in November, but um, it's just uh, still a little bit dicey. I don't I don't want to be traveling with you know the four of us going in and out of truck stops, and uh, so I guess uh, probably I, I won't do a lot of work until January. Uh, we'll probably go back. And we'll, we'll probably start up with our our Continental Club residency again. Um, nobody seems to be getting sick there anymore. For a while there, there were a whole bunch of breakthrough cases, uh, but I haven't heard of one in a while. And I'm going to have my arm out as soon as they offer up that booster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going to do that too. Well, we wish you all the best and, and hope you get through Memphis at some point. We'd love to have you here and maybe stop by and do a little Vibe and Dime session here. That'd be great. We love the album and uh, wish you the best of luck and I uh, look forward to seeing you sometime down the road. Well, thank you. Take care, James. Th thanks, Amy. Be good.
We hope you enjoyed this conversation with James McMurtry. To learn more about James and what he's up to, and to purchase his first full-length studio album in seven years, The Horses and the Hounds, visit James McMurtry or NewWestRecords.com. And remember, you can visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content and download the official free Diddy TV app from your app store today. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shot? Would they shot? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.